Yeah. She was like, you know, you're gay, right? I was like, I'm not gay. This is a picture of my boyfriend, Gage. And I showed her. <laughs> in my, I showed her a picture in my wallet. <laughs> not my purse. <laughs> Hello, I am Kay Anderson, and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories they created there, and the people that they used to know. Melissa Ferrick is an American singer-songwriter whose career exploded when, in 1991, she was a last-minute replacement support act for a Morrissey tour. Since then, she has released an impressive number of albums and has even had one of her songs, Drive, named as a lesbian anthem. And trust me, that song is filthy. We caught up to talk about Man Ray, a bar in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which closed in 2005 after nearly 20 years of business. One thing that's really interesting is that there would there used to be only certain nights that were okay to be gay in certain clubs. I don't know if yeah, you've yeah. had that experience. So I think that Man Ray was, and I could be, well, you can check the history on this, but it I think was, it was. It was a nightclub in Central Square, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Is your Wikipedia it? Yeah, it's on Wikipedia. Like, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, does it say, was it Wednesday nights? I think it was Wednesday nights was queer night or like gay night. I used to go to goth gay night. It was amazing. That was the other thing was I feel like also we used to have that kind of space, right? Where we would drill down even more to like, not just gay, but like specifically what kind of gay, right? Like it was like, what kind of gay, what kind of gay fashion, what kind of gay music? Like it it just would get more and more siloed. And so you would have these specific nights of the week, especially even at gay venues where, or gay bars where it would be like, Tuesday night, you know, is beard night and Wednesday night is uh, Mm. dyke night and Thursday night is goth night. And I love that about our culture. I loved that. You love that. Oh, that's really interesting. I loved it. I loved it because I felt invited at all of the spaces though. Like, or maybe that's just how kind of um, manic I am that I just be like, I'll go, you know, and I would just dress up and assume I was invited everywhere. That's kind of... (laughs) Um, how gay I am. I feel oh, like I'm so, invited everywhere. So, you, so you've never been to one of those nights full of uh, shirtless men who are sweaty and hairless and are like, what the fuck are you doing here? Oh, yes, I've been there. Um, but, <laughs> but, but you're honestly, like, whatever, like, I'm here to have a good time. Exactly. Fuck yourself. <laughs> They're not paying any attention to me anyway. They're all trying to see themselves in the mirror. So who cares? But you're like in the way. You're like, you know, in in the eye, like oh, blocking yeah. the eye line of someone who yeah, they fancy. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like white parties. And okay. So, so it wasn't a a queer specific club. It just had certain nights. Mm -hmm. And one of those nights was a Gothic gay night. That's very niche. Is there, was there a big audience for that? 
Well, it felt like there were thousands of people there because I was 19. (laughs) Oh, okay. I'm sure that there were not thousands of people. There were probably, I mean, I don't know, maybe 100 people there. But this was, you know, I mean, I was in college. I had a fake ID. I was just out of the closet. I was loving every second of it. I was, like, really into Sinead O'Connor's first album. And I was really into, like, the church. The church had a really big record out at that time. And, um bands like Jean Loves Jezebel and Susie and the Banshees and um, uh, Susie Sue and um, Roxy Music was always a good standby. Uh, That was always kind of a good slow dance. Lots of camel lights, lots of smoking cigarettes, lots of, um, yeah, lots of single malts. No, camel, camel. Oh, okay, camel lights. I always thought you you went to a club full of candles. I was like, fire hazard. (laughs) Yeah, so I loved it. I loved it. I would say that, but it wasn't necessarily that there was a goth queer scene going on, although there probably was. It was more just that that's what the kind of music that they would play on that particular night. And so we would go, basically the nights were were scheduled around the kind of music that it was. It mm-hmm. felt. So, so you slathered on a bunch of black eyeliner, you got your fake ID and you went to the club. Do you remember like that first, that feeling of going through the door the first time? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think um, it, it felt dangerous because it was also in central square in Cambridge, which at that time was a bit of a dangerous area. Um. <laughs> And it was on like a one-way street and it was dark. I mean, not only were all of the clothes dark and the music was dark, but the club itself was dark. It was one of those situations where, you know, you, you, you'd very, you were very likely to end up making out with someone that you couldn't see. And, and that was fine. That was almost expected. I mean, that was part of why you were going there. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, obvious. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. You don't have to look at them. Then that, yeah. Bonus. Even better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I remember just kind of leaning against the wall. You know, it was a brick uh, or a cement square windowless building as they, as many of them are. And um, yeah, I remember being really excited and, um, and like living on the edge, you know, that was, that was something that, uh, really appealed to me. Uh, yeah, I, I loved it. And so did you go on your own? No, I went with a, a very, I would go with just a very small group of people, maybe two or three other girls that okay. I was friends with. So, and so then what was your coming out journey like then? So you, were you out by the time that you started going? Yeah, it was just, I mean, well, so I first came out when I was 16. And so I was going to Man Ray when I was 19. So I was 16. I had a, um, my first um, same sex encounter, like queer encounter, I'll call it, because I like to use the gen- uh, the sex thing. Um, but my first queer encounter was um, in Boston at Berkeley College of Music summer program, and I met a girl there that I liked a lot, and she told me that I was gay, <laughs> which was a shock to me, <laughs> shockingly. Oh, really? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. She was like, you know, you're gay, right? I was like, I'm not gay. This is a picture of my boyfriend, Gage. And I showed her <laughs> in my, I showed her a picture in my wallet, <laughs> not my purse. <laughs> it's 
So anyway, her name was Jamie and we made out and she sang me Janis Joplin songs and it was awesome. And I was 16 and, you know, I'm really lucky though. I grew up in a family where I wasn't, you know, my, my parents were really accepting. I mean, it was hard for them, but I was accepted. And, um, so when I went to college that next year, I went to college when I was, I entered when I was 17 and then I turned 18 shortly after. And then I was going to the clubs. I mean, right away, I guess I might've been 18 when I was going to Man Ray. Cause I, that was my first year of college. Mm-hmm. So I, so I was out, but I was, I probably had like my first girl. Well, I had, I, I did have my first girlfriend in high school, but maybe I was on my second <laughs> girlfriend, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, just just breaking hearts and left, right, and center. I had a girlfriend and a boyfriend, so I was I was bi, you know, I was I was calling myself bisexual for a little while there, um, and and I I loved Jeff. I had this boyfriend named Jeff, who I loved a lot. But I ran into him years later in Chicago, but anyway. But his photo is not no longer in your wallet. No, it's not. No, but I wouldn't mind. I would love to know what he's doing. He's a great, great, great human, great person. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, that's what it was like, you know? And so you'd found other queer friends at college that you went to the club with? Yeah, I'm trying to think. There was this woman named Betty that would come to the queer club with me, and she was gay. And then um, this girl, Sarah, and I think I was dating Sarah. (laughs) I don't, was there any? Yeah, I think that we were all, I think we were all identifying as queer. But I do remember, um, so not only at this time, so we're talking early 90s to mid, let's just call early 90s to mid 90s, because that was the time period where Mm. I was going to those kinds of clubs. That So not only did we not have our own actual, I mean, we had a couple of our own always gay places, like Club Cafe, which still exists, right? And Henrietta's, which still exists. But normally, that wasn't the norm. Normally, you had regular clubs, straight, you know, straight clubs, straight owned and straight run clubs, um, usually owned by straight, straight white cis men Mm. um, who had the money and the power that would own a club. And then they would have certain nights that they would give to these, uh, you know, historically marginalized communities. And one of those communities is the queer community. And so we would have our own night. And then sooner or later, that night would become so awesome (laughs) that it would get co-opted by the straights. Mm. Right? Remember this? And so then they would come in and be like, it would be a cool thing to be a cool straight person that was okay that was cool enough to like go gay nights right and then it was like this that gay night isn't as fun anymore so we'd have to start a new one at a new club and then so i feel like that's kind of how the gay nights would bounce around which would be when we would get infiltrated by um by by the by the others the others (laughs) and we're like we used to be the others and so much harder to keep track of those things when there's no kind of internet or anything like that. Like, how do you, how did you know? I mean, obviously you knew when it was passe, but how did you know what the next thing was? Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't even know how I knew. How did we know where to go? Well, we would call each other, like, on the telephone. <laughs> Shocking. And how scary is that thought, by the way? so scary. so weird. <laughs> I would like remember so many people's phone numbers. I don't even, I mean, I barely have my partner's phone number memorized now when I have to fill out a thing where it's like your partner's <laughs> number. I'm like, what's your phone number? Like, what's your birthday? Um, uh, 
Oh, I, I guess in the local, we had like um, the Boston Phoenix here, which would be like the Village Voice would be the version of it in New York, right? Where they would list the clubs. So in New York, if you were going to go, like the Paramount would have certain nights that were, which were, you know, uh, directed toward the queer community. And, and it would say in the, in the paper, um, mm. gay night, you know, or a men's night or a women, ladies night out always a big ladies. one like, yeah yeah ladies <laughs> we're like so this is for the guys or this is for um and and so before long you started kind of playing out and building a name for yourself as a musician which kind of takes you away from the queer scene doesn't it it takes you into coffee shops and bars that are specifically for music yeah that um and i think uh, i'm really glad that you bring that up because i think a lot of I'm not quite sure that a lot of people have actually really understood that. Um, And I've had to explain that to people before when they're like, Oh, so you play, you've spent your life playing in gay bars. And I'm like, no, what? (laughs) Yeah. It just, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, you wouldn't say that to a straight singer songwriter. Oh, you spent your life playing in straight bars. Um, Yeah, no, you're right. I just started playing music venues. I started playing places where music happened. And then that's why when we were conversing before we got to get together um, today, I do think that that panel that I don't remember the panel that I was on, but I was on a panel and there are many panels. I've been on many panels knew it. And I love a panel. So don't get me wrong. Um, and the, one of the people that was on the panel is this, um, this gay man who had something to do with, you know, um, trending and branding and social media marketing specialist and really, really intelligent conversation around that. And he kind of just off the cuff said, which I found so touching, but I I could tear up even just thinking about it. He said, but you created queer space wherever you went. And I was like, oh, I was like, what? I didn't say that again. I did that. (laughs) And he was, but he was, because he was young, he's probably a decade or maybe 15 years younger than me and knew of me. He was obviously not really my uh, target market, but, you know, he definitely was aware of the work that I had done. And because of the work that he does in social media and branding and marketing, can see someone like me and say, oh, this is what Melissa Farrick did. Um, if I were to market this or brand this or tell this story, mm-hmm. this is what I would say about this person as part of her story that during the time period of, which was also, you know, poignant, which was, you know, right, you know, after Melissa Etheridge came out and was on a billboard in Times Square with Julie Julie Cyphers, which was her wife at the time. And, you know, at the time that Ellen DeGeneres came out on TV um, and Katie Lang was out and Elton John came out and, you know, we had this kind of rush in the nineties of very, very famous people coming out, but we also had less very, very famous people playing in the bars, you Mm -hmm. know, one of those people was me. And, um, and so for me, I think that, um, one of the things that is cool is that as we, as I grew up in gay bars, not being gay bars, but certain nights of bars being gay, it, I wonder about whether or not I didn't kind of, you know, I, that is exactly what I did as I traveled everywhere I went. There was a little, you know, um, a, a little posse of gay people uh, or, and, or queer and, and queer allies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Kind of bouncing along behind me, making it, you know, a night for themselves. And what's lovely about that is that it it's less about me and more about each other, right? It's mm. less about 
And I've always believed in that. I've always believed that it's less about the genre of music as it is about the, the community that is collective, that is collecting. Um, so it, it always mm. makes me happy when, whenever I go to a venue or a space where I'm supporting a queer artist, I know there's going to be other queer people there. So to me, it really doesn't matter if it's spoken word, if it's punk, if it's, if it's goth, if it's singer songwriter, I know that there's going to be like-minded people in a room with me. And so I feel safe in that kind of environment. So, um, yeah, you've got like a, a different baseline with those people. Exactly. And then so in terms of your performing career, did you start out in open mics and things like that and work your way up? Yeah, I, when I first started playing out, I started playing at a venue called Titi the Bears place, like TT and then the Bears. And that was right across the street from Man Ray. So that's kind of cool. And, <laughs> um, and I played there open mic and then, I got maybe a gaggle of 15 or 16 people that would come to every Tuesday night open mic to watch me play. And then the bartender gave me my own, you know, 6, 6 p.m. door, 7.30 on stage slot on a Wednesday night. And that's how I built my fan base. Mm. So I did that. Um, and then I and then um, I would get a opening slot for a national act that didn't have an opener that would come through every once in a while. I'm sure you know the scene. It's the same story from from all of us, right? Like yeah. someone will come into town and their opener isn't with them or they don't have one for that market. And so the club owner may like you or like your work. So they call you and they say, um, hey, do you want to open for uh, David Broza? I got to open for David Broza once. I remember that because I really like his work and um, the story. And I mean, I can remember lots of, you know, random one-offs. And, um, and then the random one-off came that wasn't a one-off which was which was the morrissey tour and mm. that's and that's when everything changed mm. that was the kill that was kill uncle 1991 um and so that that happened in boston the first show was july 3rd and then the next day was the 4th of july so that's a holiday here in the states and then the fifth i got a phone call to that said Moz had listened to my cassette and he wanted to know if i could finish the tour so i you know so that was it my whole life changed Just i was 20 wow like that wow um, yeah, I was yeah. Let's not focus on the Morrissey tour. Let's focus on some mm. of those kind of patchier, you know, one-off kind of gigs. Obviously, the example that you gave before is when you're headlining and you're bringing in an audience that that makes that queer space. When you're at an open mic where there's 20 other people performing or you're uh, supporting someone who may have a predominantly heterosexual um, audience... Did you find that you were moderating your performance or your between song banter or anything like that? No, oh. I don't. So you're not. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like, was I was I was I straighten was I straightifying it? Uh, yeah, were you like yeah leaving leaving details out or sanitizing it? I don't know. I might have, you know, I think that that strikes me more, um, more so with how I would present myself physically mm -hmm. than my banter. Although when I, when I'm headlining my own show, I definitely have a different banter because mm -hmm. I'm headlining. And mm -hmm. so you, the assumption is that everyone who's paid however much Loves that costs, you. pay yeah. that, right. They yeah. paid that to see you. Um, <laughs> 
And so you can kind of, it's your show. So I think that that's one thing. When I'm opening, I definitely am scanning the room. I'm kind of vibing out, you know, who's there, what the, what they think is funny, what they don't think is funny. But it's interesting that you asked, like, I wonder if I was, um, yeah, there have been times where I definitely um, would feel like I was more nervous that they, you know, so funny to think of now, like, that they, you know, was I worried that they might think I was gay? I mean, this is like when I told my sister that Katie Lang was gay, or no, that Jodie Foster was gay, and she was like, no, she's not. You think everyone's gay. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, if you, it's like, or that Katie Lang was gay or something, you know, like, of course I'm queer. Like you'd have to be, you'd have to be in the complete dark to see me feel my energy and not think hmm, it's possible. She's queer. Like you, you wouldn't be like that girl is straight. You would not think that, you know? Um, so I don't think I tried too hard ever to not, but, but sometimes I think there would be occasions where like, I remember maybe it was just more because I thought that looking a certain way would make me more famous you know, yeah. um, if I wore like the right, if I wore Mac lipstick in 19, you know, <laughs> 98, that, you know, that was all the rage, the, the flat matte Mac lipstick. And, and so I did that and I wore vinyl pants and I would, I would, con I would do things more to conform because oh. I thought it was the industry wanted, not necessarily to hide my queerness. It was more to to get, to get a door, like to make a song sound like it would work. Same kind of idea, yeah, right? Yeah. Let's, let's write a single. Let's write a song that will work. It's like, what does that mean? You know? <laughs> Leah, let's, let's, yeah, let's produce it in a certain way. Let's fit it in a certain box. But so like, did you not even, I mean, just reflecting on my own experiences, this is an interview with you, but I'm just going to make it about me. Oh yeah, um, no, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I'm in the exact same boat in that like no one would ever be in a bar watching me perform and be like, oh, I wonder if he's got a girlfriend. Um, so it's not necessarily like, oh, I, I'm going to try and trick people, but it's that whole thing of like, oh, I'm just going to not shove it down their throat. And I like, I might just not play this particular song because it involves graphic details about my sex life, which means I have like two songs I can play. But like, it, it also means that, you know, there's like, I'm not going to, there's, I'm not going to get that hostility, I suppose. Yeah. And, but then it's a great question is then are you really being truly yourself? And then when we think about that even further, I totally get this, what you're talking about. There's, are, am I then not giving people the opportunity mm. to, to be fully themselves? I mean, Tom Waits brings all of himself everywhere he goes, right? So why not? Why not bring, you know, when I play, have I not played drive in certain rooms? For sure. But only because there were like young children present, <laughs> That's they've really got to learn sometime. Except when you listen <laughs> to that song, it's actually not all that graphic. But but what I, what I said to someone once, or I finally came to the realization, I said, if there's if, if there's face paint involved, and and the sun is still out, I won't play it. <laughs> um, but at the same time, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's a. I mean, who who are we really trying to save face for? I don't know if it's safe face. I it's maybe surviving the moment. Yeah. Yeah, it's not saving face. You're right. It's it's surviving. Yeah, that's great. So, like, I opened for Weezer. Here's a good example. 
did the Weezer Buddy Holly tour. Okay. So I'm playing in front of predominantly young girls and boys, right. Who are white straight. And at that time, this was, this was before, I mean, Weezer was cool then, but they're way cooler now. But at this time, this was like that, the height of their fame. And, um, I remember I was playing with them at the, one of the shows was at the Fillmore in San Francisco and they used to give you an apple when you would get, go to the venue. It was like a thing that they did. And during my opening slot, did you get a chance to wash it? What the apple? Yeah. Just like a dirty apple. Oh no, it was, this was way pre COVID. Nobody washed anything. They just, we just, yeah. Okay. All right. So sorry, sorry. I interrupted you. Someone threw an apple. No, no, no. (laughs) They threw an apple at me and it hit me. And it's uh, in the guitar and it like exploded up. But then there was this moment of like the whole audience is going to turn against me or they're going to go with me. Like it, it was that moment. And, uh-huh. and this is just an example of like, you know, when I was on, when I was doing that tour, I wasn't out as like a gay, I think maybe I had just come out actually as a gay artist. Cause I had some articles in like out magazine and the advocate, which I always joke about. I'm like, how is, if you come out and it's only in gay press, <laughs> if a tree that? falls in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> we already know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's a way to get a pretty picture of yourself on the cover of something. Um, look, good lighting and makeup. And, uh, but so anyway, this is an example of like being in a predominant in front of a predominantly straight crowd and having them turn on you. And so someone did and they threw the apple. And then there was this moment where I was like, <gasps> they're all going to, and something happened. And then the, they, the rest of them just started clapping and like egging me on to, to make it, to keep going. And there was this like kind of amazing moment where, the, the person who threw the apple at me ended up being the outcast and not me. And that mm. felt really awesome and um, empowering. So That bastard. Let's track him down. Um, so going back to that uh, statement from before when someone said that you made a space queer by, by bringing mm. your performance, by bringing yourself, what elements do you think helped create that? Um. I can, I, when you asked me that question, I thought of two different approaches to answering the question. So I'll just tell you those two. So the first, the first one that I went to, which was, um, that it starts from the person who's willing to book you. Right. So the fact that, uh, the, at Shuba's in Chicago, for instance, was willing to book me as a headlining act and have me and then play, play me for two shows a night and then two nights for two shows, do four shows at Shuba's and, um, have so what enables that is not just me being willing to tour. So there's the my end of it, right? Like I'm willing to tour. I'm willing to, you know, have a have have live the traveling life of a circus member. You know, uh, the way that we do if you're a if you're a touring independent artist. Um, but there's also um, what you're asking for from the community at large, right? So you need to find bars that are willing to book a queer act. And you need to find um, a fan base that's willing to go to that bar. So I do know that that, that's actually something that I hadn't thought about in a long time, which is there have been certain bars that certain fans have told me that are like scary for them to go to. Like they're like, we don't really go to this bar. They're like, just so you know, this isn't really like a, uh, I wish I um, could think of a specific one. I hadn't thought that we would talk about this, so I didn't think this through before the interview. But um, 
But I think that that's a good point to bring up, you know, I mean, that's only kind of, you can only get that information, as you know, from being on the ground and being with your fans, right? Mm -hmm. By playing, by playing our shows, when you have a indie career or a career uh, playing music for people that you get to meet after the shows and at least kind of start to recognize a couple of them per city, you'd be like, oh, I'm pretty sure I know that guy. He always comes to my show or whatever. Um, so to get that kind of trust with your fan base is also something really um, special, you know, that not every artist gets. So um, I do think it's important to listen to that. And and how, so and, how did that yeah. work like in the 90s then? So, sorry, it's like in the olden days before the no, internet. Um, yes, exactly. Like how did that work when like you, you, you don't have that direct line to your fans? Is it just talking after gigs? Yeah, it was then, but I, I mean, so this is, we're going to fast forward now because after the Moz thing happened and then I did Atlantic. And so I started really doing my own, my indie career really started in, I want to say like 1999, the early aughts was really the big time for me. So um, at least we did have, um, the internet and we had, I had an, uh, you know, a, a, a cell phone and a pager, but we didn't have iTunes yet. Uh, iTunes was 2005, I think. So as of 2005, we had iTunes and stuff like that, but so it was, it was, it was the internet. It was, Oh, okay. We were, yeah. But cause before that, um, I was talking to people after shows and that is mostly how you did it. But what I'm talking about was more in my early Later aughts yeah. mid 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 2000s career time period yeah yeah um and there is that magical thing when you are performing in a room and you make that connection and give permission for people to be themselves and bring themselves to the audience and engage in a certain way um I'm making massive assumptions about you because you're just so like casual and like, yeah, oh, I'm just so cool. This is just how I am. But like, is there anything that you consciously do in order to create that space? Is there anything that I consciously do to create that space? No, but I can tell you that when I'm not in a good space, I, I can tell that I'm unable to create uh, that, that I'm, you know, like when you're not having a good day, you know, when you're whatever, when you're just exhausted or you've just had it, you just can't do it. And, and that happens to everybody. It just so happens that in our jobs, it's quite noticeable. Yeah. It's quite noticeable. (laughs) You can't take a mental health day. People are like, you know, you're on stage on your mental health day and people are like, why is she so pissed off? And I'm like, cause I don't want to be here today. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Couldn't call in sick asshole. Um, I was just thinking about, well, I wasn't thinking about it. It had to do with a, a, actually an, S, a, a, an assignment that students are doing this last week about participatory performance. Um, and I was thinking about how awesome participatory performances are, <gasps> right? Oh, Where I think there's nothing worse. It's, ter- it's terrifying. Oh, you, hate, you, you don't like it? As an audience member, it's terrifying. Oh, sure. Yeah, I agree. I don't want to be the person that the person that Cirque du Soleil chooses. Oh, yes. No, no. But what, but part of a kind of participatory performance can be when you are just 
in the audience singing along okay. where they're not asking you to come up on stage, but, but like, it's that chorus, it's the end of the night and you're like, you know, and then everyone's doing the swing and you're with your friend. And there's this moment of collab, right? You're not in a theater at Broadway on the ground in the dark and Hamilton is happening in front of you. Um, and you have nothing to do, but just clap at the end of each section and then that's it. And, um, and I was thinking about, how um i think that when i'm able to create space those moments of of singing along at shows i don't know if you've had this i would assume you have had this happen where people sing along to one of your songs Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of like one of the most incredible things that can i mean that have ever happened to me it's very very bizarre it's a very it's an outer body experience um it's very odd to have yourself sung at you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, by a bunch of mostly queers, you know, people who have known you and in a lot of ways feel like they know you, even though they know you through lyrics and songs that you've written that are somewhat about you, but masked behind many mm-hmm. other people, relationships, and also masked behind what a rhymes? good rhyme. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> A good rhyme and um, a better version of the story, you yeah. know? Um, so, yeah, it, it's interesting. Very interesting. And so uh, I'm interested in this, like, pissed off thing because um, I guess some artists, it's easier to get up on stage and be like, hey, everyone, I'm really pissed off today. I had a shit day. I'm going to do some songs. Um, do, you, do, you ne- do you never feel like you're able to do that with your audience? Oh, I used to do it all the time. Oh, okay. People used to come, uh, yeah, they used to come to my show and there would be some people that would come to my show and try, they would try to get me pissed off because the vibe was that I would do a better show if I was mad. So I remember this one girl in particular who, I had this one show, it was in Indianapolis, Indiana at a place called Radio Radio. And she was leaning against the stage. She was in the front row, but her back was to me and I was playing and she was on the phone. For their back. <laughs> and so I leaned over and I was like, hey, and I pretended that I thought this was a great idea. And then I wanted to say hi to the person on the phone. So I took her phone and I went like this. And I put her phone on top of the drum kit and I left it there for the rest of the show. It was awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, I would yell at people for talking while I was playing. Oh, oh, but this wasn't her tactic to get you to play better. I don't know, but it, but it made <laughs> It made for quite the show because <laughs> everyone else who's interested in like being on their best behavior is now because they're worried that like I'm actually they're like on that 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 intensity that feeling of like oh my god is, are they going to get really mad kind of hovers over the whole performance right so it kind of it's a whole different type air. of participatory uh, audience. <laughs> <laughs> It's called a room full of adult children of alcoholics on the edge of freaking out. <laughs> Being flung what back kind of to mood, grade school. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of mood are you going to be in today? <laughs> oh, oh, but yeah, so fascinating. Like when you're, when you're really angry and pissed off there and, and performing in some ways, you're like, I just want to get this over with. So there's like an intensity to the way you play because you're just like, let's just do this fuck you all do you feel like you play better when you're angry this yeah there's something interesting about anger because it blocks out other things 
for me. So like it will block out nerves because I'm just pissed off. So then I'm not nervous about playing and I don't mess up in like chords or whatever. Interesting. Well, it is a much more focused emotion, mm, isn't it? Mm, mm. And ha- happiness. Happiness and joy are much more wide. Yeah, yeah. And anger anger is much more pointed, right? Or concentration or passion. Um, and so I, I think um, I have a, my, all of my, re- the research that I'm into is in this um, idea of creativity and emotion and psychopathology. I'm very like deeply involved in that work. And I find what you're talking about very, the emotions that drive, that can drive performances are all, that, that whole conversation is extremely interesting to me. Sadness too is another one that's extremely wide and hard to control, right? I don't know. Yeah. Sadness. It can be. Yeah. I don't know. Grief is pretty wide. I don't know. Maybe both. Maybe grief can be both. Yeah. I mean, grief, there's there's no focus with grief, is there? It's just all over the place. I haven't experienced, I haven't experienced very much actual grief in my life um, over losing anyone or anything, but I can really relate to your, I can really relate to the performing angry. I, um, and I mean, and I like, I think directed anger is a really good thing sometimes, you know? And, and so for me, I think, and similarly to you, anger is a kind of passion um, or to have a passionate anger, like an angst. Mm-hmm. And I, I like working from that space of intensity. Um, so do you want me to um, get my, my phone out and start talking on it and turn my back to you right now? No, because I'm having so much fun. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll like channel you. No, but I want to. I want to write. I want to write a song with you about about this. I want to co-write something with you about. I mean, I would. I would. I would love the idea. I would love to hear other people. We should start a like a like a thread or something an, or a blog an, or something. An anger about club. This. Yeah. <laughs> and and is it anger or is it passion? Do you know what we could do? We could have like a songwriting circle where we just all yeah. insult each other for like half an hour and then go away and, and write songs. And then workshop our anger, anger driven songs, yes. uh, anger inspired songs. Yes. Yeah. That's a great idea. And you'd that's be a so, great I'm idea. Gonna, I'm going to prove Melissa uh, wrong. Fuck her. I'm going to write the best song ever. And, <laughs> and then like parenthesis, in parentheses, can we write crying is allowed? <laughs> it's okay if your feelings really get hurt. We'll have, have it as like a safe word. We'll be, have a safe word like orange when you're actually really hurting my feelings because it doesn't take much. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, well, That's great. you just need to channel that, all right? Yep. Um, so if we cycle back to Man Ray mm. and the young woman who went there and made out with people that she didn't ever actually see because it was in the dark mm. and pressed up against a wall. If you were to run into her now, mm. what would you say? What would I say? Um, as much as I want to reply with, you know, some, I want to, a part of me wants to say something to you, like, or to myself, like, um, remember this, you know, or um, take note kind of a thing, uh, be a little more present. Um, and I, but I want to make sure that um, 
when I, when I, but I do remember it. And I, and so I, I don't necessarily think I would say that because I think I did do a good job at remembering it, you know, cause I'm remembering it and I can really recall. Um, it was so lovely the way you asked me what it felt like when I first walked in there. I really appreciated that question because it, it, it helped me to really think about the sight and the smells and the sounds and the feel of it. And I hadn't thought about that in a long time, but it's also really nice to know that I can recall those things. And, um, so I think what I might say is um, to um, to try to enjoy myself. I think I um, I have a hard time having fun, and um, in my in my as in my nowness, I'm trying more to. It sounds so silly, but I'm trying more to have fun. You know, mm. like even I go for a walk, I'll try to. Like it sounds so, st- but I, I do, I try to like look up through the trees and look at the sky and notice the moon and, 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 and think, are you enjoying yourself? You know, mm-hmm. like think about your body in this air in on this planet, in this kind of, um, really, um, making, making, acknowledging my visibility, mm-hmm. acknowledging my existence to myself because I spent so long, uh, and I'm just the kind of person who spent so who would live has lived a life so uh, as like a moving target, as if I were chasing after something that was never never catchable. You know, mm. it's always the next gig. It's the next gig when I get there. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Very hard to be who I am. Yeah. And, and there's yeah. I mean, when you said about um, struggling to have fun or to, to embrace fun things that resonated for me. Um, and I've been thinking about it a lot recently in that when you are, when you're a creative person, um, there is this, this kind of, there's no, there's no end to the work. Is there? It's like, Oh, I can always write another song or I can always do this and I can always do this. And so there's this kind of feeling of, guilt sometimes for me and anyway that I'm like squandering moments because I'm not being productive mm. and that means I come at everything with this like okay but what's going to come out of this <laughs> like so a lot of time with friendships that happens for me it's like well oh we should have a project together we should do this together we should do this together rather than like well let's just hang out and have fun um because I always want things to be uh to have an outcome there's like an urgency. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And also there, I'm hearing a little bit of the idea too, which I, I have fallen into this before to this kind of mindset where, I mean, I just did it to you. Like we should write a song, you know, where it's like, it's always the next thing rather than. What was it? You didn't mean that. No, I do. (laughs) (laughs) But like, you're right. Like that, that this this moment in and of itself is is to be present for it is important. But I, so I think having fun. I think what I would say to the girl at Man Ray, you know, is like um, maybe don't take yourself so seriously is one thing. Like relax a little bit. Like, but I also don't want to take away how um, brilliant and awesome my urgency is. You know, I mean, it's only because of and mm. and you seem to be a really similar person to me in that way that most of the people I've met who have 
uh, self-propelled careers, you know, at all sorts of different levels of whatever, you know, stardom or fame or success means they're, they're really self-driven, um, high, highly productive, highly creative people who, um, are the most interesting people to me. Um, and, and they are rarely satisfied. And if there is a moment of satisfaction, it doesn't usually last for very long. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want to listen to any of my music except for whatever I'm working on right now. And what I'm working on right now is the best thing I've ever done. And wait till you hear it. You know, that's kind of my mindset. And then I'll put something out and I will listen to it by myself in my car really loudly for maybe three months. And then I will never listen to it. I I mean, it's, it's, it's painful to listen to my own work. So, um, I think that that there's a, yeah, isn't, oh, it's so interesting. (laughs) Aren't you that way too though? Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. And like, um, like when you get the first mix or the first master of, of, of a track, you put it on your, like your phone and you go out and you go for a walk and you listen to it and you're like, oh, I am the shit. Like, it's I am amazing. so fucking good. And then like three months later, you listen to it and you're like, what, what, why did I like, what's, what's the inflection there? Why did I say that? Like, why did I, oh. and like, oh, I yeah, never want to listen I, to this I, again. Can I get it deleted off Spotify? <laughs> That's amazing. I never got as far as thinking if I could delete it because I'm sure I can't. But I definitely am like, why did I not hear that the way that I sang that word is just it's just horrifying? Like I can't like A, I'm mad that I didn't hear it, and then B, I'm pissed that no one had the balls to tell me that I sounded like an idiot. I'm like, why is no one that I'm working with able to say to me, Melissa, <laughs> this vocal doesn't sound like what you said. You know what I mean? It's just so, but that's good because it means we're not done. I think that, you know, artists who think that something, you know, there's, there, there should not be, I mean, there, everything's a snapshot, right? So you just keep putting stuff out and that's okay. You shouldn't, I think, you know, do we really even, I don't even know that I would want to be satisfied because then there would be nothing left. There would be nothing else to do. So is, is this you justifying it to yourself? No. <laughs> um, I've been thinking a lot recently about the word uh, record and how I never really associated it with it being a record of a moment in time or a moment, yeah, of capturing something. And I always put too much pressure on it and maybe being like needing to be timeless or needing to be something else and rather than just being like well this is where I was at this is this is like my thought process you know which is which is um expressed in the lyrics but also in the choice of arrangement and also in Mm -hmm. the the filter that I might have put over my vocals and all these types of things and and just be okay with that yeah it's like if you think of it as a snapshot, then you know that you wouldn't judge the photograph of you when you were 12. Yes, I would. What? But you, but you would know that it was in itself beautiful, like the bicycle, right, that you had or whatever. You loved that bike or whatever. Now you're like, oh, God, I can't believe I love that bike so much or whatever. Uh, it's kind of the same thing. But no, a certain amount of time has gone by now since my first two records that were on, uh, those are the ones I made on Atlantic. And I, and I've listened to some of the tracks off those ones 
more recently. And what I have found is this um, incredible um, distance from that person mm. now. Mm. And I have this like, uh, it's almost like a motherly or a parental reaction to the performances of just like, oh my God, you, you, you sweet, you sweet dear thing. You know what I mean? I'm just like, oh, wow, this is so great. It's so great how, how serious about it all I was. And, um, and is this specifically about uh, the performance or about the lyrics and the song itself? Yes, it's not about the production because the production just is what it is. It was, you know, it was Toad the Wet Sprocket meets Tony Childs and that you're not going to get away from that. Uh, so, yeah, no, it's about the lyric, both the lyric and the performance, how I would sing, how I sang, mm -hmm. my inflections. And, um, yeah, and the, and the lyrics. So just extremely um, interested in self, but that's not unusual for young writing and it's not unusual for me i mean it's not a unusual lot of writers, for writers <laughs> writers write about themselves you know and yeah, it's, yeah. so it's supposed to be it's supposed to be universal yeah yeah so i don't know i i i'm starting to um appreciate the early early work i don't know did you ever go to man ray well if you did i want to hear all about it Find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook with the username K Anderson Music. Let me know what you got up to. And also make sure that you take a listen to Melissa's back catalogue and follow her on Instagram. Her username is, funnily enough, Melissa Ferrick. Lost Spaces is not only a podcast, but a concept record as well. I've been writing songs about queer venues and the people who used to live their lives there and will be releasing songs over the coming year. You can hear the first single, which is called Well Groom Boys and is also playing underneath my talking right now on all good streaming platforms. If you like this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribed, left a review on Apple Podcasts, or just told someone who you think might be interested in giving it a little listen to. I am Kay Anderson, and you have been listening to Lost Spaces.